Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwanda, and I serve as an assistant priest here. We are continuing in our Lenten series, The Wages of Sin, the Gift of God. We've considered the wages of sin, condemnation, brokenness, shame, and exile, and the gifts of God, justification, wholeness, glory, and home. This morning, we'll look at the consequence of division and the gift of unity. Our passage is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, found on page 917 of your Pew Bible. If you're at home, I encourage you to have the passage at hand or to grab a Bible in your home. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Molly, who I like to sing with that is often met by her response of, no, no, daddy, I want to sing alone. In eighth grade, I tried out for the middle school musical, The Wizard of Oz, and probably not surprising given puberty's voice change, I was awarded the one major role without a song, The Wizard. I was best kept as the man behind the curtain. But the song that I sang for tryout, I still remember. It was Imagine by John Lennon. You might remember the chorus. I won't sing it for you. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Now this sounds nice, but in all honesty, it doesn't square with our reality or with scripture. And while the song even commends that unity can be found apart from God and religion, that is quite the opposite of what Paul tells us in Ephesians. The song says that imagining utopia is easy if you try, but I think it's in reality, easier to imagine division. Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus and beyond. Ephesus sat as the gateway uh, to cities beyond in the east. And like most of the epistles of the New Testament, it was written to a context of divisions that Christians were facing. Specifically for Ephesians, the context was ethnic division between the Jews and Gentiles. You can imagine the name calling, circumcised, uncircumcised, Clearly, they probably had more creative insults than that, and their problems are not necessarily the same as ours today. But both contexts have their own biases, suspicions, cancel culture, judgment of other customs and cultures, even questioning of other ethnic groups' faith. But Ephesians does not focus on a specific problem of division, but instead on general uh, privilege, pridefulness, ethnocentrism that was baked into their systems and their culture. This week I was considering that dynamic between specific acts and things which are, are baked into our world and lamented the specific acts of evil that we saw in Atlanta. But it's also important that we grieve that we live in a world where racism, sexualization, and division are baked into our culture. This last year, even this last week, have shown division in both sinful attitudes and actions, and it has shown us entire groups divided by race, by politics, and how to move forward. Some may focus more on private sins, and others may focus more on public sins or systems. I'm aware of my own experience just recently. 
divisions about family perspectives on COVID and protocols, tensions with friends and loved ones over politics, isolation from others whose lives are unlike mine because of my life circumstances, even and perhaps especially so those who are ethnically different from myself. Imagine all the people living life divided. It's easy if you try. The hostility of division is our reality. You can find some notes in your service leaflet on page 11 and see where it is we'll be headed this morning. The reason that the hostility of division is our reality is that because it is because it's one of the wages of sin. Sin divides us from God, but it also divides us from each other. When sin entered creation, the devil deceived, humans disobeyed, and division was the result. The Greek word for the devil, diabolos, means literally the divider, one who throws things apart. And from Genesis 3 on, scripture paints a picture of vertical division between man and God and horizontal division between people. Vertically, Adam and Eve hid from God. They were near to God and then it was as if they were far off. And horizontally, Adam and Eve were divided. Remember the, the finger pointing, the accusation of fault? See, division shows the natural hostility that humans have to each other and our hostility to God. As we consider our passage, remember that the context was politically Roman, culturally Greek or Gentile, and religiously Jewish. Ethnic bias was just low-hanging fruit for people who were sinful by nature. Now, it is important to note that there is a difference between ethnicity and race. Ethnicity, uh, a, a biblical category, is more distinct and, and specific. So ethnically, I am Czechoslovakian or English. Czechoslovakian, Schwanda, good Germanic last name, which means that's different from saying that I am just white. Okay? Ethnicity refers to common ancestry, nationality, customs, language, while race, on the other hand, is a classification according to supposed physical traits and ancestry that has present-day realities. Look at our passage and let's consider the ways in which we see division, both because of ethnicity between people, but also with God. Look down at verse 11 and at verse 12. We see that vertically, the Gentiles were at one time separated from Christ, in verse 12. Now, the Greek Gentiles were not being punished for their ethnicity. God had revealed himself specifically to Israel so that all people would know and be reconciled to God. The Gentiles were separated from God in the same way that we are, in the same way that all humans are because of our sinful nature. It was a bleak position, and as it says in verse 12, it is one without God and without hope. Now, vertically, the Gentiles were also, excuse me, horizontally, the, the Gentiles were also separated. We see that division and sin is more than just a vertical matter of personal sin, of personal spirituality. Sin affects groups of people, and sinful patterns become enmeshed in culture. And for the Gentiles, this meant that they were as strangers, alienated from Israel. The Jews had privileges that the Gentiles didn't. We act as if privilege is a new concept. It's not. The Jews focused on external distinctions. It says that you're talking about the circumcision. This was something done in the flesh. 
But the result was relational division, social division, and physical division. The temple in Jerusalem uh, had a number of divisions and walls which would limit who could go where in the temple. And one of these divisions divided the court of the Gentiles from the intersection of the temple where the Israelites could go. It involved a five-foot stone barricade, five steps, and on the stones there are inscriptions that archaeologists have discovered which state that there will be death to any foreigner who enters. It makes our trespassers will be prosecuted signs look a bit flimsy. For Paul, that was no laughing matter. Paul, at one time, had almost been killed by a mob and then was prosecuted, all because it was alleged that he had brought a Gentile Christian beyond that barrier. This was a dividing wall of hostility, and it showed that the Gentiles were isolated and excluded. And it is for this reason, because of this reality of the hostility of division, that we need the hope of unity, which is truly found in God. You have probably heard it said, whether in English class or Sunday school, that if you see a therefore in Scripture, you should ask what it is therefore. And Paul uses a few of these transitional phrases which should alert us as readers as to his purpose. Look down and you'll see, but now. But now, in verse 13. And later on, so then. And we'll take a look at that. At one time... The Gentiles were divided by hostility, but now. And this but now signals the good news of the gospel for them and for us. And the good news is this. Vertically, we were far off from God, but now we are brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has brought us peace and we are reconciled to God. And horizontally, the good news for our relationship with others is that there was hostility, but now we are made one in his flesh and peace is possible. Esau Macaulay, who is an Anglican priest who wrote the book Reading While Black, which one of our education formation classes is looking at, writes, what brings the warring parties of the world together is not the emergence of a new philosophy of government. It is not free market capitalism, communism, socialism, or democracy. It is a person the root of Jesse. In this person, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility that we see in verse 14. In verse 16, it again says that he killed the hostility. We know that there was this wall in the temple that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. There was also a curtain or veil in the temple, which you're probably more familiar with. It was so thick that it may as well have been a wall, and it divided the rest of the temple from the, holies, the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence dwelled. It separated sinful and hostile humanity from a holy God. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us in their Gospels that at the moment of Jesus' death, that curtain was torn in two. See, both types of division, vertical and horizontal, are abolished and put to death by Jesus' reconciling work on the cross. Those who were hopeless can find hope in God. And it's the hope of restored relationship, first and primarily with God, 
and secondarily with humans, that hostility would be no more. Now we know, because we're familiar with scripture, that humans of every race, ethnicity, tribe, and tongue are created equal. That is the biblical anthropology. Created in God's image, equality. We also know that Christ came to redeem all. That's why Paul writes later in Galatians, he writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But the walls that we see highlighted ethnic differences in order to devalue some. I'm I'm sure that Satan was delighted. More division, yay! But the church should only highlight ethnic differences in order to celebrate the God-given diversity and value of individuals and of groups. So unity is not the same thing as uniformity or, or unanimity. And certainly, unity doesn't erase the particularity, the diversity of God's family. I read this quote this week, which I thought was helpful. Christianity is not the cultural property of any single racial or ethnic group. Rather, it has always existed as a family of chosen people composed of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's the hope that Paul holds out. It's the hope that in Christ, those who are ethnically hostile become family, members of God's household, that the oppressed and oppressors are brothers and sisters, that those with privilege and those without become equally loved siblings under the same all-loving Father. There's a a resource that the Gospel Coalition put out called uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams that has some helpful guidance here. See, the problem is that while we have this hope in our fallen world that hasn't been fully restored, this type of equality that the Bible speaks of is not fully experienced. What is spiritually true is not yet fully experienced. And in our world, even our nation, what may even be legally established is not fully experienced. And that is why for us, our hope and what we need is the Holy Spirit at work in an ongoing way. I've seen enough HGTV shows to know that demolition is only half of the work of renovation. In this passage, we see that the Holy Spirit's work is ongoing. We see in verse 18 that the two ethnic groups are given access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Access to God. And secondly, if you look down in 22, the culminating verse of this passage, we see that they are being built together on the foundation of Christ. They are being built. It's an active, it's an ongoing verb. It applies to us. We are being built. And so we long for the Holy Spirit to keep working in us, that in the midst of division, that we would be those agents of peace, the ambassadors of reconciliation, as Paul writes in Corinthians. Scripture says of many things that the Father has willed it, and we know that in Christ it has been accomplished, and yet we still long for the Spirit to apply it. So remember that dynamic. The Father has willed it, Christ has accomplished it, and the Spirit is applying it. Turn back to our passage. 
What's the word it begins with? Somebody shout it out. Therefore, I heard it behind all the muffling of the masks. Therefore, so what's it there for? Okay, if you have a pew Bible or you got your Bible at home, here's where you're rewarded. You can actually look at what it is there for. I'll read it to the rest of us. The few verses that come beforehand are probably familiar. They go like this. It's the gospel in Paul's word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Saved by grace, not by our own work, but by the gift of God. And God has prepared good work for us to do, because as his workmanship, we are to reflect his work in the world. Therefore, in light of that gospel truth, we seek to live out with humility the good work prepared for us. Vertically with God, that means that we repent, that we rejoice, that we receive that good gift. And horizontally, we seek to, as our our opening hymn says, live the love that God has shown to us. As we close, I want to share a few practical things that I have been learning in this season and things that I've especially been learning as I've tried to engage with friends and those near me who are of different ethnic and racial backgrounds, yet share the same faith. I'm learning that true unity doesn't avoid uncomfortable or challenging conversations or situations, but that there's great benefit from humility, from sympathy, clarity, and charity. Let me address these quickly as we come to a close. First, humility. We saw in our passage that the Jewish Christians were biased against the Gentiles. And so for me, as I seek to better listen to those Christians who are different from me, I ask the Holy Spirit for humility. One of my mentors in this area reminds me frequently that there's a good reason why I have two ears and one mouth. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, not delighted in my singing, probably agrees. Second, sympathy. Greek scholars will know, sim, meaning together, pathos meaning feeling. The word together in our last verse of our passage has that same root. So for me, as I try to see and understand others' feelings, whether it's fear or anger or guilt or shame, I try to feel them. It's not always possible, but I try as much as I can to actually enter into those feelings. And this past week, that's even meant listening to friends of mine who are Christians, who are Asian Americans, who have had a very emotional week. This isn't easy. My life has been one which has not had a whole lot of hardship, fairly relatively privileged. But as Christians, we are called, as it says in Romans, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep. Third, clarity. Often division just comes from poor communication. Not always, but often. And so in disagreements, I'm learning that it's very important that I actually understand what the other person is saying. Not based on hearsay, not based on a 144-character internet bite, but what they are actually saying. And this is why personal conversations are so much more helpful than the forwarded email from the Facebook comment thread. Good Lord. 
Plain, honest language is so much more helpful than buzzwords, which are used by many who don't share the same definitions of the very words they're using. And in light of that, fourth and finally, charity. We should all know that we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. Sociologists will call this a high perception gap. And they've taken studies, they've shown that regardless of education, regardless of politics, regardless of social media or what media you consume, we all have a high perception gap. That means that our estimations of others and what we think and what we believe about them are off, off by as much as 50%. It's, that's crazy. Instead, we must assume the best of others. You've probably heard the saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. As Christians, there are things which are essential to our salvation. There are also a lot of things which are not essential to our salvation, about which reasonable Christians can and likely will disagree. And what I'm learning is that when I'm in doubt about which category of essential or non-essential something falls into, I should default to the third category of charity. I should care more about the relationship with the person I'm disagreeing with than about being right. This is hard, and thanks be to God for his reconciling work through Jesus and his ongoing work through the Spirit in us. This is Paul's hope. In Ephesians, he writes about unity. It's actually from chapter 2 to chapter 4. That is his, is his focus, unity in the midst of division. And right smack dab, sandwiched in the middle, he has this long seven or eight verse prayer. He prays that God would supernaturally join people together in unity. And it's in that context that he offers this prayer, which I offer as closing. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.